I was asked if we could skip the sermon and just greet this morning, which is what it usually feels like after 15 minutes of greeting. But I decided that I, would, I should share that because I, I was going to start by saying this, and it fits with me saying that I was asked that. I often joke, I think it's a joke, that I have the spiritual gift of being a jerk. Now, hopefully, I, I, I trust that you all know that there is no list of spiritual gifts where that is included. But I say that because I do think it's a little bit true. And I'm going to make another statement. And before you want to, like, stone me for heresy, hear me out on why I say it. Because I think that if Jesus lived today, we would call him a jerk. It's hard to read the Gospels and not walk away thinking that Jesus is a little bit of a jerk based on our standards. Think about all of the times that he confronts people. He doesn't do confrontation very gently, especially with the people he confronts, because we like to say that we need to confront, and we need to stand up and preach that sin is sin. And so you go to Indiana State, and you see the fountain, and you see people out there telling everybody they're going to hell for the way they're living. And you hear people in church say, we need to stand up and tell the culture it's going to hell because it's killing babies and it's promoting homosexuality. But if you look at Jesus' life, that's not the way in which Jesus was a jerk. Jesus showed up to church and told their leaders that they were going to hell. Jesus showed up and he would look at the leaders of the churches and say, you're nothing but hypocrites. Or something that may connect a little bit more to where we are in our culture. He called him the brood of vipers. Now, a more easily understandable translation for us would be sons of snakes. Now, not that our culture has any kind of term where we call somebody a son of an animal. But that's what Jesus does. He shows up to their churches and looks at the religious leaders and says, you're nothing but sons of snakes and hypocrites because of the way you live. Now, I'm pretty sure that if he would show up to our churches today and do that, we would be pretty quick to call him a jerk. Now, there is a big difference between Jesus and me because I don't want it to sound like I'm saying, hey, I'm just like Jesus. Because one, Jesus was always right. Jesus never sinned and he wasn't arrogant. He wasn't prideful. He, all of those things that I am. And so I'm not elevating myself there, but I do think there's this place where we as a church, the church, the body of Christ, at least our culture wide, but I would say worldwide as a whole, some of it, I think political correctness has crept in. And so we say that we shouldn't be politically correct, but yet when we're in our own congregations, we want people to be politically correct with us. And we say things like, only God can judge me and don't judge me or you're going to be judged. And we don't look at the full context of those passages, but we're really quick to throw that out there because we don't want people judging us. You, who are you to judge me because you're a sinner too? We want to be happy and we want to leave feeling good about ourselves. The problem is we fail to forgive and we're greedy, and we gossip, and we lie, and we complain about the government leaders rather than pray for them the way that Paul instructs us to. And we lust, 
and we steal and we manipulate. And the list could go on and on and on. See, the reason I say all of this is that I am convinced that part of the reason, I think that these things, let me rephrase that, I am convinced that these things contribute to the truth that the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyles. I think the fact that the church has bought into this notion that you can't judge me and you can't tell me that I'm wrong and you, you're, not, you're no better than me, so you better not tell me that I'm living in a way that doesn't honor God. And we have bought into that so much we can't work on those areas and where we fail. And so we come and we worship God and then we leave and we continue in those same patterns of sin and people from the world look at us and go, why in the world would I want to be a part of something like that? I have enough of those issues in my life without coming to church. I don't need to come to church and try to worship God and deal with the same stuff that I deal with in the Little League field and at work and everywhere else in my life. I think part of the reason that we don't grow to be who we're called to be as Christians is because we don't like to be uncomfortable and we really don't like our toes stepped on. We don't want to be confronted with the things that we struggle with. And so this morning we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 through verse 5 of chapter 2. It's uh, page 983 in the Pew Bibles, I believe. And I want to remind you, we, we read Paul's prayer again during our welcome time this morning, those uh, few verses, verse 9 through verse 12 of chapter 1, where he prays that they would grow in the knowledge of God. And he says, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then what we looked at last week, those verses 15 through 20, where he explains who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And it's interesting how this knowledge of God leads to holiness or maturity. I I think that for the sake of this letter that we are studying, for the sake of Colossians, I think the word maturity and the word holiness are one and the same as we study it in the way that it's used. So if you will, read with me uh, chapter 1, verses 21 through verse 5 of chapter 2. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for, the age, for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone 
mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. There are a few things that I want to unpack with this and look at to look at this idea of maturity and holiness and the idea that we, we may want to reconsider our position on only God can judge us. And there are a lot of things, as you notice, that talks about uh, the mystery of God, and there's all these things that we could unpack, and we may talk about those a little in Sunday school if you want to look at those more. Uh, But for the sake of this, we're going to look at this idea of maturity and what it means to have a Jesus-centered life. And so the first thing I want you to notice is Paul talks about Christ's work again. He, He picks up a little bit on where he left off in verses 15 through 20. Though he didn't really leave off, that's just where we left off because he didn't have those numbers there. But he says he reconciled us by his death in verse 22. But I want you to notice the purpose statement that accompanies this reconciliation. Did you catch that? He is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. But why? It was in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Now I think about this and I think about Paul because when I hear the words above reproach, I immediately go to 1 Timothy where Paul lists those qualifications for leaders and he says that to be a leader, you are to be above reproach. And then I read this and I read that this isn't just a qualification for leaders, it's a qualification for Christians. Paul says that Jesus reconciled us through his body of flesh by his death in order that we be above reproach. And so it would only make sense if that Jesus is doing this for all Christians who believe in him. How much more important is it that somebody who is a leader have that quality in their lives? Because that was the purpose of Jesus' death. And so we have Christ's work and then we have Paul's goal He says it's his goal to make God's word fully known in verse 25. And then he says, warning and teaching everyone for maturity in verse 28. But notice there's a word in verse 28 that repeats itself three times. See if you catch this. Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Three times Paul makes it clear that this is done for everyone. They teach and proclaim in order that everyone 
be presented mature. Not just the spiritually elite, not just those special Christians that are really close to Jesus, not just church leaders, not just ministers, not just volunteers, but that everyone who calls themselves by the name of Christ may be presented mature before him. And he says that that is what he toils and struggles to do. He works at that and struggles at that with all of the power that God gives him. Did you catch that straining, that struggle language of that this is not easy, that this is difficult and it's tough, but how much he's working to do that? And then we have the Colossians calling. They're told in verse 23 to continue in faith. But I think that that first word of 23 is an interesting connection. Because remember verse 22. He is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order with the purpose of presenting you holy and blameless above reproach. The sentence doesn't end. It continues in verse 23 where Paul says, if, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. That word if is an awfully big word. I think that word if has caused a lot of debates among Christians. This is one of those passages that makes me struggle and wrestle with the idea of once saved, always saved. Because it sounds like Paul's saying that we have to remain faithful for Christ's work in us to remain effective. Now, I, again, I've said this before, I do not think that this is a question of God's faithfulness. God is always faithful. God is always loving and just and quick to forgive. The problem is sometimes we make the choice to walk away from that forgiveness. And we don't stand stable and steadfast. In fact, I, I, I know of uh, some people, and it's interesting because Paul is also addressing here false doctrine. Because he says, I don't want you to be swayed by plausible arguments. Think about that. This isn't just radical, ridiculous arguments. These are plausible that might make a little sense if we're not completely grounded in the truth of Christ. But I know of some people who were leaders and elders in a church, and they started getting caught up in some plausible arguments that were pulling them toward a Jewish Christian view, almost exactly what Paul argues against in a lot of the New Testament. That in order to be a Christian today in the 21st century, you had to abide by the Jewish religious laws and the Jewish food laws and all of these different things. You had to worship on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, not on Sunday. They had all of these things that they started to buy into. But according to Paul, as plausible as those may be, those make null and void the work of Christ. Because if you have to do those things, then Christ's work was not effective. But what Paul does say is that he is presenting us holy and blameless if we remain faithful. 
And we continue in our faith with stability and steadfastness, not shifting from that hope that we have in the cross and remembering that our hope is in the cross and in the empty tomb. Really what I think Paul is saying throughout all of this, because this theme kind of repeats as you notice by those verses jumping back and forth looking through these three things, is that a life with Jesus at the center pursues maturity. If we are going to have a life that has Jesus at the center, it requires us to pursue maturity. In fact, another way to think about this as we look at it is that Christ died for our maturity. Paul struggled for our maturity, and the church is called to maturity. Christ died in order that we be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul struggled and toiled with all of the energy that he had from God in order to present the church holy and blameless and above reproach before Christ. And he has called them to be stable and steadfast in order that they be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before Christ. A life with Jesus at the center pursues maturity. Which is why Paul says we pray that you would increase in the knowledge of God and that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. Because maturity is not just what we think or not just what we do. It is a combination of both of them. Because if you do the right things with the wrong motives, that's not doing the right thing. There are a lot of people throughout the world who have done good things in the name of Buddha or in the name of Muhammad or Hinduism. But they aren't doing those things for the glory of God. In fact, there are a lot of people who have done a lot of good things for the church, but they've done it in the name of themselves. Doing the right thing with the wrong motive is not maturity, it's selfishness. And there are a lot of people that have done a lot of things to grow their knowledge, but they aren't doing anything with that knowledge. And so this maturity requires both doing the right thing and growing in our knowledge and our understanding. And so I think that just like the church in Colossae, we are to pursue maturity, if you look at the back of the bulletin, the, the title of the sermon is More Than Saved. Because I think that we are called to be more than just saved. Jesus died in order for us to be holy and blameless and above reproach. And that is what we are called to. We are not called to walk down the aisle and do whatever the church that we are attending says that we need to do in order to be saved. We are to go beyond that and live out that salvation. One of the things that I think is interesting that I was thinking about this week is that we write thank you cards for everything, don't we? I, I remember when I graduated high school, my mom was not very happy with me because it took a really long time for those thank you cards to get done for all of the cards and whatnot. And, and 
There have been times where things have happened and we make sure that you send a thank you card. But what is interesting to me is somebody does something nice for us, whether they send us a card that says, I'm thinking of you, praying for you. And we feel obligated to send them a card back that says thank you. Somebody gives us a nice gift and we feel obligated to send a card back that says thank you. In fact, I've known people that did something nice for somebody. They didn't get a thank you card in return and they were upset that they didn't get a thank you card. Now, why is it that we believe so heavily and lean so heavily on this idea of a thank you card, but we don't think that it's necessary to live a life of thanks for what Christ has done for us? You see, all of this is not about earning salvation. It's about living a life of thankfulness and gratitude and showing God that we are thankful for what he's done by living in a way that honors and glorifies him, which is pursuing maturity. I want to go back to this idea of everyone in verse 28. N.T. Wright says that the, the everyone being repeated three times emphasizes that every single Christian is capable of the maturity in which Paul speaks. There is no excuse for us. Paul doesn't say, I do this in order that everyone except these people be presented mature. I've done this so that most Christians except those that don't fit the right demographic or too rich or too poor or too old or too young may be presented mature. He says, we do this in order that everyone, every single person, it is capable for all Christians to reach this maturity. I want to return to this idea of being a jerk because I think that what we need is that we must have people that are willing to be jerks for Jesus if we are to reach maturity and holiness. Now again, I'm saying that with the idea of what our culture and what I think the church as a whole has bought into at times that calling anybody out for something wrong is being a jerk. Calling people out for poor attitudes is being a jerk. Calling people out for being irresponsible is being a jerk. Really what it is, is it's speaking the truth in love. If we want to reach maturity and holiness, we need to be willing to hold each other accountable. We need to be willing to lovingly confront each other when we see something that isn't right. But we also need to be willing to allow other people to hold us accountable. Because accountability doesn't work if we're not willing to receive that confrontation. Now again, we have to make sure that we do all of this in love and with the right motive. But we will not reach and achieve maturity and holiness if we aren't willing to be confronted with those areas of immaturity. A life with Jesus at the center pursues maturity. And I think it's when we pursue this maturity that we have the opportunity to look different than the world around us and to look pleasing to the world around us and to have people say, what is it that's different about you? Why do you live differently? And it gives us the opportunity to explain the hope that we have. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who aren't mature. Mature. 
Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you love us as we are and not as we should be, but that you love us enough to drive us to where we need to be. I pray that we would value and pursue maturity. I pray that we would recognize that we are called to stand strong in our faith, stable and steadfast in the hope that we have. I pray that we would live lives of gratitude for what you have done for us in watching your son be tortured and mocked and spit upon and hung on a cross when he and you both had all the power to take him down and you chose not to for us. I pray that that would stir some sort of thankfulness in our hearts that would cause us to live in a way that glorifies you, to live in a way that says thank you for what you've done. I pray that we would desire to pursue maturity in order that you be glorified and in order that we be able to reach those around us who don't know you. Give us the strength and the power from your spirit to do those things that are difficult and tough. Give us the ability and the desire to lovingly confront sin and give us the desire and the ability to be humble enough to allow others to lovingly confront the sin in our lives so that we can glorify you in everything that we say and everything that we think and everything that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.